Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, in many ways, the DAG is the the chief operating officer of the Department of Justice. Um, it's the number two position there. And it really is the position from where many of the most significant policy decisions are made. That was FCPA compliance report fan favorite James Kukios. Introducing this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, where James and I take a deep dive into the speech by Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco back in October, announcing new Department of Justice focus on white-collar crime, FCPA enforcement, the use of monitors by the Department of Justice, the focus on culture and corporations, and reinstatement of the Yates memo and revocation of the Benchkowski memo. This is a significant issue for every compliance professional, and I wanted to take a deep dive with James on this for your education. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome back for another episode. And today I have back with me fan favorite James Kukios, and we're going to talk about a couple of his law firm, Morrison and Forster's. Uh, top 10 international anti-corruption development newsletters that appeared in Q4 of 2021. Uh, I asked James if we could dedicate the October newsletter to the uh, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco speech at the ABA White Collar Conference. So we're going to take some time to maybe dissect that uh, speech, first giving some of the, the broader outlines and reaches from uh, Monaco's speech, and then maybe drilling down a little bit about what it might actually mean for people like James, who are external counsel to a number of companies and some compliance practitioners and uh, perhaps companies going forward. So James, first of all, uh, hearty 2022, and welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Happy New Year, and thanks for having me. James, one thing I've learned, uh, I started in this uh, field about 2007 is that uh, we've seen developments from the Department of Justice, the Department of Justice. uh, I don't want to say it ebbs and flows because uh, we have changes in administration, but we also see the Department of Justice reflect to facts on the ground or or react rather to facts on the ground. As situations change, they may take new and different positions. And it seemed to me that that was what occurred in October when Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco gave her speech. Uh, I've not had the chance to ask this question, so let me start with asking, what, why is a DAG speech so significant? Who is the DAG, and how does the DAG relate to the fraud uh, section uh, or the uh, FCPA unit? 
Sure, it's a great question. And and I'll be honest, you know, I started my DOJ career as an AUSA in Miami, pretty far from, you know, Washington, D.C. and Maine Justice. And, and I'm not sure I actually knew exactly what the importance of the DAG was, even when I was a federal prosecutor to start out with. So it's a it's a fair question. Um, in many ways, the DAG is the, the chief operating officer of the Department of Justice. Um, it's the number two position there. And it really is the position from where many of the most significant policy decisions are made. Obviously, the attorney general is the number one slot, and, the, and at the end of the day, the buck stops there. But uh, when you're really talking about department policy, it really is the DAG who's out in the forefront deciding what um, policies and procedures the um, line attorneys at DOJ will be taking. So whether it be dis- discovery issues or how to deal with corporate uh, defendants or you, you name it, when it comes to a big policy issue, it's really the, the DAG um, who sets that. And that's why you a lot of um, policies are known by you know, the names of the DAGs, like the Yates Memo or the Philip Factors. Those were DAGs in the past who announced major policy changes or initiatives um, and were named after them. You know, it's, uh, it's particularly significant that what the DAG says for um, for corporate criminal enforcement, it is for individual enforcement as well. But when you get into business crimes, um, because a couple of reasons, number one, a lot of those um, cases are made out of D.C., uh, which is just geographically close, obviously, to the DAG, who's in D.C. at Maine Justice. So, you know, you can go over there and, and, and meet very easily. Um, but also the corporate cases, no matter where they take uh, where take place, they tend to be a pretty high profile and pretty high importance to the department. And so when the DAG announces a corporate enforcement policy or a change to corporate enforcement policy, it really does affect what the line prosecutors do, what companies have to do when they are um, before DOJ. And it's really significant. Um, so, you know, over here, the, the top 10 international anti-corruption developments newsletter, we pay particular attention to DAG speeches because they often signal um, changes in corporate enforcement and therefore FCPA enforcement that we need to pay attention to. So I, I saw three broad outlines in uh, Monica's speech, and I wanted to see if one you concurred with that. And maybe if you do, we can drill down a little bit. But number one was, I'm going to call it the reinstatement of the Yates memo, but the uh, uh, requirement that corporations fully investigate all potential participants and turn over all information to the Department of Justice. Uh, Number two, the Department of Justice will review not simply FCPA prior conduct in FCPA matters, but really all conduct. Uh, And that's not only for FCPA matters, but they want to know if you've had antitrust issues, EEOC issues, or a wide variety of other issues when considering a potential penalty or uh, a declination. And number three, a uh, revocation of the Benchkowski memo, moving back to more utilization of monitors. Is is that what you saw as maybe the three uh, broad broad brush elements of the speech? Yes. I, I would, uh, when we get to number three, I'd characterize it a little bit differently, but there's no doubt that uh, a change in at least perception or practice around the Benchkowski memo for sure was one of the messages. So let me start with uh, number one, which was, uh, I've called it the reinstatement of the Yates memo, but uh, number one, corporations and or 
probably more importantly, people like you have to do uh, uh, additional or more investigations. But that information also has to be turned over to the Department of Justice, and the Department of Justice will make an evaluation on whether they choose uh, to move forward. Uh, if that's uh, a fair assessment, how do you see that playing out in practice, James? Yeah, it's a good question, Tom. You know, when the Yates memo first came out, it was obviously a very uh, tough talk about um, individual uh, enforcement against individuals. And the first principle was that um, companies to earn cooperation credit had to provide all information regarding everybody involved in the misconduct. Um, and, you know, that was a, it was very broad, all individuals to get any credit, you had to do this. And then under um, the Trump administration, um, they they pulled back on that a little bit. And, and sometimes I wonder if it's, I mean, words do matter, obviously, but I sometimes wonder if it's a really big difference in practice versus how you articulate the, the principle. But in under the um, uh, Rod Rosenstein, they changed it to say uh, that it, you had to provide information about all people who were substantially involved in the misconduct. And now with this recent speech by uh, Dag Monaco, it's back to all information about all people involved in misconduct. You know, I think it, a lot of that is an interpretation of the detail and what you know as an investigator. Um, you know, when you're investigating something, you don't always know all the people who are involved. Um, you obviously focus in on the people who seem most likely to have been involved. You follow the leads, you follow the significant um, actors where the evidence, you know, you interview witnesses, they tell you so-and-so is involved. You look at documents, you see names on things and you talk to them. And I think for the most part, most practitioners would, would um, talk to those people, get their documents and um, provide the information to DOJ. Um, you know, query who, what it means to be involved in misconduct. Um, for example, if, if somebody just hit um, the payment button, you know, they're just an accounts payable person. Uh, there's no indication that they had any involvement in the actual misconduct at all. Um, they just were a functionary, for lack of a better word, and 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 pressed the payment button that got a third party um, paid, and then, then money was later used for a bribe. Was that person involved? Was that person not substantially involved? I think there's a you know depending on the interpretation, you could say that person wasn't even involved in the misconduct because they were just pressing the button. The substantially involved kind of made it a little easier for practitioners to not have to kind of say, well, in this world, you know, she's sort of involved because she pressed the button or he's not involved. You know, and, and so the substantially involved, I think, was a little bit meant to not let companies off easily, easy, but to make it a little bit easier to make those determinations. But now DOJ is saying, you know, we don't want you to make those determinations. You, you need to tell us everything. But I still think just exercise of regular judgment, people are going to have to make those decisions and try to interpret that, um, what that means. That said, I mean, usually when you're in an investigation with, with the government, you're cooperating with the government, there's a lot of give and take. There's a lot of back and forth. You know, uh, sometimes you don't know the full picture when you first come in and you tell the DOJ and SEC or wh whichever agency it is, like, these are the people we think are involved. And then as you go along, you may supplement that list or DOJ might look at a document and say, 
hey, we think that person was involved. I would hope if that happens, the latter, where you know you didn't focus on somebody because you didn't think they were involved, but DOJ sees a document and think they are, that you'd still get cooperation credit. Um, but it, it leads to some still some difficult interpretation um, issues. That was a long answer, Tom, but I think that <laughs> that's uh, yeah, that's kind of I see it as very nuanced about who's actually involved. But it's really at the margins. If somebody's clearly involved, you're going to tell DOJ about it. You're going to make you know you're you're not going to hide hide that. So James, next was this uh, concept that the DOJ wanted information on all the legal violations, uh, enforcements, or perhaps even investigations. And there was another part of Dag Monaco's speech where she talked about corporate culture and the importance of corporate culture. And and to me, actually, these two points were tied together because uh, although I'm not, I don't know if I made that up in my head because I'm not sure she really made that explicit connection in her speech because I heard her talk about culture and then flip to uh, other legal violations the company may have engaged in. And it, it seemed to me that she was having a broader outline about corporate culture and the DOJ wants to assess uh, whether or not you follow the rules in other areas. Uh, I don't know if if you found that uh, accurate or not, but I I do know that one of the areas that I've seen the most, if not pushback, at least discussion by the white collar defense bar, particularly at the ACI National FCPA conference, was on this prompt. And uh, a wide variety of concerns raised by other white-collar uh, defense practitioners. And I was wondering, really wanted to get maybe your thoughts on this prong of her speech. I think you're, I think you're onto something there, Tom. And I also think that the reason this got so much play is this is probably the most, I think, significant part of the speech um, because it really could open up um, when you're talking to DOJ about a resolution – a lot more subject matters, and it may make it much more difficult to get a deferred prosecution agreement or a non-prosecution agreement, and it may make it easier to get breached, even if you do get one. Um, so it's interesting, you know, what she said um, in her speech is that going forward, prosecutors will be directed to consider the full. We're going to have a quick message for our sponsor, and then and we'll be right back with more from the FCPA compliance. Deciding report. what resolution is appropriate for a company. That is the subject or target of a criminal investigation. That's extremely broad. I mean, especially for large multinational uh, corporations that have tens of thousands of employees and operations all over the world. Um, you know, it's possible that you could have a foot foul in in one country. Um, you know, you could have an environmental problem here. You could have a FCPA problem there, and none of them could be related. You know, different people, different regimes, different plants, different root causes. Um, but now they're all potentially on the table, and you're going to have to talk to DOJ about them. Now, the one thing, and I think this gets to your point, Tom, is she did add that some prior instances of misconduct may ultimately prove to have less significance, but prosecutors need to start by assuming all prior misconduct is potentially relevant. And what I think that I think that does tie into your culture point, because if, you know, you just happen to have you bought an aging plant and it had some environmental problems, you know, you pled guilty, but it sort of wasn't because you're a bad company. It was the circumstances versus, you know, the reason you had an environmental problem was because you don't take control seriously 
and there is a profit over safety or profit over environment culture. And then that seems to have motivated the FCPA violation and the and the corporate fraud violation and what, what have you. I do think that's where it gets to be less significant versus more significant. Is this more a pattern of a bad corporate culture um, such that uh, an NPA or a DPA would be a, a bad resolution versus are these isolated instances, they don't reflect upon the corporate culture, and therefore we can still trust a company with a deferred prosecution agreement or a non-prosecution agreement despite their record. Either way, um, when you're going in to negotiate a resolution with DOJ and you get to the Philip Factors presentation and you start talking about that history of prior misconduct, you know, quite, quite realistically, that could be a much longer and more difficult conversation. And the company and their counsel are going to have to be much uh much more prepared and ready to to answer for those uh, prior resolutions, the prior instances of misconduct, to explain why there should be of less significance, why it doesn't reflect an overall um, culture of non-compliance, and why you should still get a, a more favorable resolution despite these things. So I think it upped the stakes, and I think it made companies and defense counsel job much more difficult in that regard. James, the third general theme was around monitorships. And here I saw three parts to uh, Dak Monaco's speech. Number one, that uh, I saw a re- uh, revocation of the Benchkowski memo, although I know now you saw it a little bit differently, but that the DOJ would uh, put uh, monitors back on the table for consideration for, for three reasons. One is that they want uh, to use monitors to basically extend their reach, uh, which uh, I think we've both seen done in the past. Number two, it allows companies to actually have a true subject matter expert because I find monitors to really be almost uniformly subject matter experts in compliance, or at least their teams, to put in a first-class compliance program. But three, it brought uh, number three, though, was perhaps a little more troubling, which was the issue of recidivism, uh, and FCPA recidivists, but also companies who had not fulfilled their obligations under their settlement agreements, whether it be a DPA or NPA. And that uh, it seemed to me the Department of Justice was uh, thought that having a monitor in place might act as an early tripwire or perhaps uh, prevent a, uh, either of those eventualities. That led me to think that uh, you know perhaps the DOJ thought companies were not taking their obligations as seriously as they should, under uh, a settlement agreement, a recidivist is, a, I think, a different type of, of uh, animal. But what were your thoughts on the monitorship prong? We're going to have a quick message from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back with more from the FCPA Compliance Report. So first of all, there's no doubt that the DAG's speech was a signal that this administration is going to be much more pro-monitor um, and that they're going to see monitors as a, as a much more um, acceptable requirement of a resolution. So, so I think that's definitely the tr- um, accurate. I don't think it's technically a revocation of the Benchkowski memo. Um, and let me explain that a little bit. When I read the Benchkowski memo, um, when it came out a couple of years ago, 
I did not see it saying that we're not going to use monitors anymore. In many ways, I saw it saying, you know, here are the procedures that we're going to follow in terms of deciding whether we're going to impose a monitor. And a lot of this stuff wasn't new from in terms of practice. It had been the practice that had developed over years, led largely by the fraud section, um, but really kind of codifying what that informal practice was, which I saw as a good thing because it was giving people more transparency about what to expect, um, you know, what's going to happen when you have to talk about a monitorship with DOJ. There was talk in there about having the monitors have a, um, a more focused scope to prevent scope creep. Uh, and there was a talk about making sure that they were used in, in appropriate cases. Um, now, those were the words. That's how I interpreted it. Not that I, I interpret it not as saying we're not going to do monitors, but we're just going to be very thoughtful when we impose them. And here are the procedures and policies we're going to follow. A lot of people interpreted it as this means they're not going to use monitors. And maybe that was correct because there's no doubt that the um, use of monitors did tail off. Um, and so, you know, maybe I'm being overly technical when I'm saying it, you know, it's not really what it said, but I actually think that that, um, the, the DAG, uh, uh, actually in her recent speech, uh, allowed for that because what she actually said was to the extent that prior justice department guidance suggested that monitorships are disfavored or are the exception, I am rescinding that guidance. And again, I think it's. What people read between the lines was it was suggesting monitors weren't there and the DAG wanted to make uh, that monitors would not be favored. And the DAG wanted to make it clear, you know, however you read this, let everybody know we do not disfavor monitors. We're going to use them, you know, maybe for the exact reasons you're saying, Tom, is it's, it's ability to extend the resources. But we believe that they're, you know, don't. Don't mistake us for the last guys. We think that this is a viable way uh, requirement for um, a resolution. And I do think it ties into your last point, which is there does seem to be a, uh, a view from the prior from the current leadership that companies are not taking their obligations under an NPA and a DPA seriously and that therefore they might meet, need to use monitors more often to make sure that that happens. I'll say, though, um, it's interesting. You know, when I was at the fraud section doing FCPA cases, we had pretty limited resources. There weren't many of us. And the self-reports, it was it was hard for us sometimes to really dive into the self-reports. Not that we didn't do it, not that we didn't try to do it. And there were cases when I was there that were extended because of, you know, self-reporting cases where things came up. Um, but it was a little bit um, more challenging for us to really implement the self-reporting as well as a monitor could. Over the last five years, DOJ has so many more resources. The fraud section in particular has so many more resources. They have people dedicated to um, DPAs and NPAs. They read the um, self-reports so much more closely. They really grill you about them. Um, and they and they expect you to include a lot more in those self-reports than than used to be the case when I was there. So I'm not, you know, I I, I understand where the um, the DAG is coming from, but I actually do think that under the current practice right now, especially in the fraud section, 
the self reports are pretty are pretty searching and and pretty well monitored. That said, to your point, there's no doubt that an uh, independent compliance monitor is much more searching, and for a troubled company, can really help it put a compliance program in place. So anyway, I, I think everything that you've said was right on, Tom. Um, and there's no doubt that uh, this is a signal that we may see more um, more monitors during this administration. I'll say also just to add, you know, we didn't see as many um, FCPA resolutions this year um, as in prior years. I don't think that has anything to do with, uh, you know, FCPA cases going away. I do wonder how much of that is because the resolution process has gotten more complicated because of all the factors that we talked about just now. Um, are, are they revisiting to make sure that the company disclosed all the evidence of all the individuals involved? Are they going back and doing a more thorough analysis of the company's criminal history? And are there more protracted and difficult discussions about, about corporate monitors? And I think that might be one of the reasons, actually, why we didn't see quite as many FCPA resolutions out there. It's not going away. Um, FCPA enforcement, obviously, is still a huge priority for the administration. But I wonder if the resolution process has gotten a little more complicated and a little more lengthy because of um, some of these new policies. As people figure out, you know, what do they mean? How do we how do we uh, account for them? How do we respond to them, both on the prosecutor side and on the defense counsel side? James, I'd like to end with a couple of questions. One, uh, I think we'll call upon your uh, experience from your public service in the department. And the second is more in your current role as white-collar defense lawyer. Uh, question one is the FCPA enforcement regime currently in place in the United States and has been in place since both of us were have been involved is uh, part of it's tied around self-reporting. And it's being a good corporate citizen, uh, but if you make a mistake, going to the Department of Justice and, as you have talked about, having an investigation, turn it over, negotiate, give and take, and a resolution appears. Uh, do any of the things in the um, Monaco speech sort of tilt the decision that a company may make uh, away from self-reporting, and I have the vision of a seesaw or teeter-totter in my head as we slide down it. Uh, and that leads to question number two. We have talked about, uh, over our podcast history, one of the most difficult conversations you as outside counsel would have, and one of the most difficult decisions a company have is whether or not to self-report. And it seems like to me the facts you've laid out or uh, have really uh, if it's not made those more difficult, they're certainly more complex now. And uh, when you uh, really sit down with a client and, and really have to go through those. And so I really wanted to ask you those kind of two questions. Number one, are we really moving away from companies being incentivized to self-report? Uh, not to say that they wouldn't do an investigation and remediate, they just wouldn't self-report. Uh, and two, um, is your conversation with a client now more complex or even more difficult uh, because of the factors, some of the factors we've laid out uh, in the, from the Monaco speech? Those are great questions, Tom. Y you know, it's interesting. Every time that um, DOJ comes out and makes a very, you know, pro-enforcement, fire and brimstone type of, of um, speech, 
I know, I know from being on the inside, the idea there is we're going to incentivize you to cooperate because we're going to tell you how bad it's going to be if you don't. But the problem that you hear on this side is, well, why am I going to open myself up to all of this fire and brimstone if I can just, you know, investigate, remediate and, and go along. Um, and, and so it does like, I don't, I never know which way it calibrates. And these are difficult issues. You, you don't want to sound lenient on corporate crime um, because maybe that encourages more crime, but you don't want to sound too fire and brimstone because maybe that discourages um, self-reporting, as you mentioned. And I think one, one thing that would be interesting is that um, Dag Monaco said at the end of her speech that they're going to be really studying a lot of these issues. They're going to be looking at uh, NPAs and DPAs and recidivism and things like that. And, and one thing I would hope that they would look at as part of that is the effect that some of their policies uh, have had on things like self-reporting and cooperation and things like that. You know, I always thought the FCPA corporate enforcement policy with the declinations with disgorgement was not a good thing to add because, you know, do companies want to – you used to be able to just get a declination. Now the best case scenario is – you pay money and your name gets out there as a bribe payer. Um, and so does that dissuade companies from reporting or not? Um, so I think it, it does it, it does make things much more difficult, especially if you're a company that has a prior history. Because what, what do you do? On the one hand, maybe you feel like we've got this prior history. If we don't self-report and cooperate but, and they find out about it, it'll be so much worse for us. Because, um, you know, the, the DAG has said they're going to crack down on us. Um, and, and the DAG has said if you're not transparent, it's going to be even worse. And so maybe because we have this prior environmental resolution and this fire, prior False Claims Act resolution, we got to come in and be report proactively because it's going to be so bad for us. And I've had clients say that. Clients who've had um, prior issues have said, you know, we feel like we have a lower threshold um, for reporting because of our prior issues. And maybe the DAG's um, speech lowers that threshold even more. On the other hand, if you're a company that has a prior issue, do you say, look, we, we, we can't disclose this because, you know, we're going to be labeled a recidivist and we've just been told we're going to get launched to the moon if this happens. So let's just clean it up fix the problem and hope that they don't notice, um, and, and have it go away. So it makes it very difficult. I'd say, I, I think it's an individual, you know, not to be too much of a lawyer, but it really is a, is, is a case by case determination. What is the corporate culture? Um, what are the, what are the, uh, pros and cons of doing both? What's your best guess? As always, if you think somebody's going to get ahead of you, if there's a whistleblower, or a disgruntled employee, or something like that, or a newspaper reporter who's going to report on this, you know that that um, favor kind of tips the um, balance in favor of reporting. But I do think speeches like this, um, they they can have a mixed result. Um, not that it's a, the wrong speech, and not that you know I'm, I'm it, these are all difficult policy decisions on the DOJ side as well. But I do hope that they take a look at maybe getting some statistics and maybe, you know, talk to people in the industry, um, maybe even on an anonymous basis to try to just gauge, you know, what has been the reaction to these things and what 
will people be more or less inclined to self-report and cooperate because of these things? And the DAG speech does open that up. Um, she said at the end that she's going to create an internal task force, and it suggests that that task force is going to reach out to the industry to talk to them. So I, I think it'd be great, and I think it'd be great to hear the results of of what that is. You know, we did something very similar with the um, FCPA resource guide where we talked to people in the industry, and I thought it was invaluable. You know, we didn't always agree with what we heard, and we couldn't make everybody happy. Um, but kind of getting the, you know, this is how your decisions are impacting us, and this is what we'd like to see different, and this we think would actually be productive if you did this, was pretty valuable. And I think, you know, if she's open to it with this task force, um, Dag Monaco, um, this could be a really good opportunity to really test that. Like, you know, why are we seeing more examples of recidivism? Um, you know, it, it, are we actually seeing that much recidivism? When when companies hear about recidivism, is that make them more or less likely to self-report to cooperate? I think it would just be really good to get some data and some concrete experiences that you don't always get when you're within the department. You need to go outside um, to get that kind of perspective. Well, James, that's a great way uh, to end our podcast because that's actually been my observation sitting on the outside. And uh, actually, I think we have both been a part of that process. But my observation is that the Department of Justice uh, does listen and that um, they have made uh, policy changes and they have made uh, different focus foci, if I can use that word, uh, of different types of enforcement. Uh, I was part of the monitorship discussion in the middle part of the first decade, leading to uh, uh, later in the Obama administration. Uh, so I think we saw some changes there. So uh, I've seen, and and from the, bar, the department side, uh, Mike Volkoff has really uh, always said the DOJ always signals what they're going to do. And you you just have to listen. And now it's explicit because we've had the resource guide and the uh, evaluation of corporate compliance programs and other formal documents. But uh, the speech, I thought, was really invaluable to communicate to us, the compliance community and, and you and the White Collar Defense Bar, that this would be a, uh, a focus and that we could have a dialogue on that focus. So uh, what a great way to end this podcast. That's agreeing again. <laughs> Always, Tom. Thanks so much. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I hope you will check out my five-part podcast series on the trial of the century, the Enron trial, which recently premiered on the Compliance Podcast Network. In this podcast series, I visit with business journalist Lauren Steffi, who covered the trial for the Houston Chronicle as its business columnist. We take a look at what led to the trial, some of the key witnesses and moments from the trial, and what the trial inevitably meant going forward. It's a fascinating look at the Enron trial some 15 years after it occurred. I know you'll enjoy this special podcast series. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.